Good morning. I'm Ann Browdy. I'm the director of the Women's Studies in Religion program and also a member of our faculty in American Religious History. Um, it's a great pleasure to welcome all of you to HDS. It's always a buzzy moment to meet the incoming class and all the energy that you bring. So thank you for being here. And I'm um, really thrilled to have our introductory panel for the Women's Studies and Religion program as part of the Vital Conversations uh, Day of Reflection and Discussion as part of Orientation. Kind of brings us back to the roots of the WSRP, the way the program was founded which really came from student initiatives in the 1970s who were putting things on the table, conversations that weren't happening, people who were excluded, a lot of people who were excluded from the curriculum and the faculty, um, and uh, students really uh, challenged the faculty to see how could we address that. And the Women's Studies and Religion program was founded with the goal of creating a new field of academic study. Um, and um, we're gonna introduce our five research associates today. Every year, we bring five new people. We do an international search every year. We look at about 100 new projects in women's studies and religion, and we choose the five that we think will add the most to our conversations at the Divinity School and to the larger field of women's studies and religion, which we hope we've contributed to creating. Um, if you all have a list of this year's research associates, if you look on the back of that, you'll see the over 170, or I'm lost count a little bit, uh, research, uh, over 170 women scholars and three men mm -hmm. um, uh, who have participated in the program. And I hope you'll see the names of lots of people that you've read as undergraduates and that you'll be reading at your courses at HDS. That's really what our goal is, is to change the canon, to expand the canon. We all, the, from its inception, um, there was an insistence that there had to be diversity among women if we we're going to um, uh, move our understanding forward in this area. I think what also connects it to today's conversation is that from the beginning there was an understanding that this isn't just about a gap in scholarship or a gap in knowledge, that it's an issue of justice, um, that expanding our... Um, our curriculum to be more inclusive um, immediately draws us to moral issues about who is, who is at the table, who is not at the table. And after um, about 30 years in this program, we're still, there's still places to push that, and I think we'll be, be doing this for a long time. It's a great pleasure uh, to introduce the moderator of today's panel. Uh, the president of the HDS Student Association, Zahar Shahid. Um, Zahar is a second year MDiv student who is focusing on the study of win women and gender in Islam. So she's a great moderator for today's panel. Zahar. Good morning, everyone, and thank you, Anne and Tim, for having me here, and hello to all of the panelists once again. Um, I'm going to get started really quickly by introducing all of our panelists briefly, as you all have the, um, their information right in front of you for more detail. 
I'm going to start off on my right with Susanna Drake, who joins us from the Women's Studies and Religion Program from McAllister College. She received her PhD from Duke University and an MTS from Harvard Divinity School. Welcome back. Um, her first book focused on slandering the Jew, sexuality and difference in early Christian texts. Her second project focuses on veiling in early Christianity. Um, then we have Lynn Gerber, comes to HDS from University of California, Berkeley, where she did her doctorate at the GTU after completing her master's at HDS. Um, welcome back as well. Um, her first book was entitled Seeking the Straight and Narrow, Weight Loss and Sexual Reorientation in Evangelical America was published by the University of Chicago Press. Her new project tells the story of the Metropolitan Community Church of San Francisco, a gay lesbian congregation and its religious engagement with AIDS. Um, welcome, Septemi Lakawa teaches feminist theology at Jakarta Theological Seminary in Indonesia, where she serves as the director of the Graduate Studies Program. At WSRP, she is revising for publication her award-winning Boston University doctoral dissertation, Risky Dialogue, Muslim and Christian Women practicing interreligious hospitality in the aftermath of religious communal violence in Indonesia. And then we have Yuhang Li. She hails from Beijing, where she studied art and art history before coming to the United States for a doctorate at the University of Chicago. She studies the construction of gender through material and literary production in Chinese religion, including hair, embroidery, and clothing. And last but not least, we have Grace Nono, who was a popular singer in the Philippines before completing a doctorate in ethnomusicology at NYU, but both her doctorate and her current book focus on the musical healing chants of indigenous women shamans. She has published two books and multiple articles about the traditions of healing chants. Her current project is entitled Babylon Sing Back, Philippine Shaman Voices on Gender, Religion, and Transnationalism. So if you could do me a huge favor and give a quick applause to our panel. Thank you. Um, so we'll start off asking uh, specific questions for each of the scholars here today and get to know them better and hopefully get more information from them because again, remember that you have the opportunity this year to take classes with each of them and learn more about what they've done their work on. Um, we're gonna start with Septimia Kava. So you've lived through religious violence in Indonesia. Can you help us understand the sources of religious violence? discourse uh, if we want to know what is the source of religious violence in Indonesia. In my research I look at both the intertwinement of both the political and the religious uh, sources of religious violence. Um, from within the 10-year period context from 1995 to 2005 Indonesia, Indonesian people have witnessed the rise of communal violence that involve particularly Muslim and Christian um, communities. And in my research in the eastern part of Indonesia, I look at the ways in which both the political and the religious come together, and then the way the community, my particular research focused on Christian community at the time, and they really did not understand why they kill each other. But then the only symbols and narratives and texts that are very familiar to them definitely are religious symbols. So although many anthropologists and literature looking at the resource and sources of conflict as better political and economic, but if you come to the field and interview people, those who are religious communities, the only thing that they could answer 
through your, their perspectives and narratives and experiences, mainly religious. So in that case, whenever you say that the sources of the violence is political, then you have to add many other dimensions. And in which case, in my research, I look at the intertwinement between the politics and the religious. Thank you. Um, just a little bit more on that. Where do women fit into religious violence and its solutions? They fit in very, very much. Um, I interviewed about 30 women um, in Halmahera, mainly those who are ministers. There are 10 of them who are ministers, and the rest are lay people, lay women. And in my interview, I found out that they experience violence differently with the way their uh, male colleagues. And for example, one of my uh, respondents says that they could not ignore that they also had become the perpetrators of violence. However, then they have to carry the burden of remembering that part. But they have uh, within their heart the urge to work for peace because that's the only option that they have. And I continued the research after I finished my dissertation and uh, I worked with Muslim and Christian communities and asked different questions whether or not there is a different way of reaching toward peace if it is done by women. And the answer to that is yes. Um, and they say we cannot do dialogue as what male have you know, um, acquired to do dialogue as at the elite level, because for them dialogue is part of their everyday life. And they see themselves as sharing stories as part of um, the solution to violence and to be able to overcome violence. And how do they fit into the huge narrative of peace and reconciliation? I can say that through their stories, their own stories and their daily life and activities, and also through, and this is part of my research and my focus, is through different uh, ways of dealing through arts and what I call aesthetics, interreligious aesthetics of peace. Thank you. Um, we'll come back to you a little bit. Little bit. Um, we're going to move on to Susanna. Um, your book will be the first study of veiling in early Christianity. Um, what are the ethical concerns you bring to this work? Thanks. And I, I have to say the first like long book like study of veiling in early Christianity because I do stand on the shoulders of people who who've um, written on this subject a little bit before. And the ethical concerns some of the ethical concerns that I bring are some of the ways of reading texts that I learned here. And one of those is to always look for relations of power. How are those inscribed in texts or in objects? And to pay special attention when you have an asymmetrical relation of power. And how does that intersect with gender, right? How does feminism help us um, expose asymmetrical relations of power between men and women? How does that intersect with class or with ethnicity? And this it gets trickier as you go back in centuries. Um, from the texts that I study are, for the most part, written by men. So we also I also have to consistently ask questions about the rhetoric of the text and how to um, how to think about the silences and gaps of the text as productive spaces to think about women, since we can't kind of retrieve women's voices um, as confidently um, as we might in more recent eras. 
So those are some of the uh, ethical way, uh, the ways that ethics informs my historical scholarship. And then I think in both my scholarship and my teaching, I always try to be aware with my students about the presuppositions that we bring. And, and here, the presuppositions and biases that we bring to the study of veiling in late antiquity, for example, is informed by um, the variety of messages that we're getting in the US culture about veiling and Muslim women's veiling in particular. And, um, and so there, I think it's really important to think through those, those biases. I have just one example. A few months ago, I'm, I'm, I live now in Minnesota. A few months ago, I was telling someone in Minnesota, I'm not an academic, but just someone who, uh, a friend of mine that I was studying um, women's, she, she asked, what are you working on next year on your sabbatical? And I said, women's veiling. And she said, women's failing? <laughs> and I said, no, 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 no. Women's veiling in you know, early Christianity. And she said, oh, same thing. And after I did what Anne just did, which was a deep <laughs> inhale, <laughs> um, I, I, I thought this is a view that so many people in the US have now if they're fed a kind of daily diet of Islamophobia and it's informed by colonialism and all sorts of things. But how do we take that, that bias that's present that equates too often it equates veiling with um, oppression or um, women's subordination in some way and unveiling as freedom. And I'm interested right now in how that bias in particular has informed previous studies of early Christianity or Greek and Roman women's veiling. So just one example of how to identify those biases work to expose them and understand how they're formed so that we can start to dismantle the dangerous ones. Thank you. As a follow-up, um, how do you think your book currently informs or is able to broaden the discussion on the veiling of women in the US today as veiling is usually just synonymous with Islam? Right, yes. Yeah. So I think, um, first of all, the. Uh, for, for my course here and for the kind of theoretical background of this work, I have really enjoyed going into the field of uh, the study of Islam more than I had in the past to think about the really sharp theoretical work being done by, um, by many Muslim women and women, uh, Muslim feminists writing about this issue. And so, so that has informed a kind of broader methodological concerns that I have, even thinking about how we can conceive of veiling as a practice of freedom and use that um, lens as we look back in time. And, and second of all, um, uh, again, I'll, I'll pick on Minnesotans um, when I was, <laughs> I love Minnesotans, but, <laughs> and they're not all the same. Um, but uh, when I was saying uh, that I was going to be teaching a course on, or thinking about veiling in, in early Christianity, um, they said, oh, that's so funny, because now when I think of veiled people, I think of Muslim women. And that, uh, and she said, but if you, th if you think of uh, the Madonna, right? Madonna is always, always depicted as veiled. So an early Christian woman who in all of our 
early art of her in our medieval art, it always has has a head covering. And so I think that um, to I, I think it's also important to think about what are traditions of veiling that predate Islam and currently, this is something I'm just starting to think about, what um, what are the other veiling traditions um, in Christianity, in Judaism that are with us today as well? Perfect, thank you. Um, Yuhang, you studied the way women depicted a Bodhisattva who was a male in India but became a female in China. What can we learn from this transition? of people in religious studies. Uh, so I'm really looking forward uh, to your uh, questions. Um, so um, as uh, Sahara said, um, my uh, project is um, basically about this uh, uh, feminized uh, deity uh, in Chinese called Guanyin, so originally uh, a male deity in India. Uh, of course, uh, this the Guanyin uh, basically. Uh, so, for people who are not familiar uh, with this uh, tradition, I just pr probably <laughs> briefly introduce uh, who he or she is. Um, so, um, Bodhisattva Guanyin uh, literally means the perceiver of songs in Chinese, um, but in Sanskrit, Avaloki uh, Tasvara means uh, the Bodhisattva of compassion. Um, so uh, one of the uh, main characteristics of uh, this um, bodhisattva or deity is um, he or she uh, has the ability uh, to transform into different roles which uh, encompass uh, hierarchical and gender differences, which means um, you know, he can transform uh, from celestial world uh, to the secular world, or from human being to non-human being, uh, from male to female. So, um, uh, it's, which is very unique power. Um, so, uh, but then the question is, um, this deity um, was represented as a male deity in India, and also in the beginning uh, when Buddhism was introduced to China. And then gradually, starting from uh, you know, sixth century, uh, we see the gradual changes uh, of the, uh, the gender of the deity. By, by the beginning of 14th century, uh, so this deity uh, was transformed into a female uh, deity. Uh, of course, Buddhism uh, was uh, widely uh, practiced in Asia, and also this deity was also worshipped uh, in various regions in Asia. But this gender transformation only took place in China. <laughs> so then the question is why? You know, there's tons of studies uh, about this uh, gender transformation. We can spend the whole semester <laughs> to talk about uh, this issue. But one main thing is, of course, is um, really closely related to the social structure and also Chinese indigenous uh, ideologies like Confucianism and also gender structures in China. Um, so, um, so one thing is uh, interesting. So, you know, scholars have approached this issue basically uh, from uh, two perspectives. One is uh, from this, um, the meaning of compassion, uh, you know, 
so one thing is in Chinese culture tradition is the compassion uh, represented by more like a mother figures. Uh, but then this actually is more contradict to the Buddhist uh, tradition, especially Mahayana Buddhism. Uh, so actually, mother represent wisdom, uh, father represent uh, compassion. So we see uh, this very interesting uh, hybrid forms uh, of uh, this uh, gender transformation. Uh, you know, gradually they change a Bodhisattva of compassion into, and combined with Chinese indigenous uh, idea of uh, compassion as feminine uh, come together. And then, of course, second approach is to discuss the uh, gender of the worshiper and the gender transformation of a deity uh, or worshipped. <laughs> so a lot of um, uh, scholars think this gender transformation of this deity, uh, Guanyin, it's intimately related to uh, social structure uh, and also uh, gender relationship in Chinese society. Especially, we often talk about uh, Confucianism, uh, who actually um, promote uh, the idea to separate, separate uh, man from woman, you know, as uh, outer space from inner space. Our women are confined uh, as uh, certain forms uh, and space. Um, like for instance, you have, have to follow your, uh, before marriage, you follow uh, your father. During the marriage, uh, you have to be obedient um, to your husband. And then um, after some women became widow, so they have to follow their sense. <laughs> and also um, Confucianism also pr promote uh, the female virtues, um, so womanly virtues, womanly speech, womanly minors, and so on. So all those indigent, um, uh, in ideologies um, combined uh, with this uh, feminized uh, Guanyin. Of course, um, if we look at uh, the feminine forms of Guanyin, we actually see it's very interesting that um, somehow, of course, um, Buddhism, people often, when talking about gender in relation to Buddhism and Confucianism, uh, so people, uh, thinks Buddhism actually uh, provide alternative space uh, for women um, to pursue uh, their spirituality. Uh, and, uh, but of course, um, you know, there are also <laughs> um, issues of gender inequality in uh, Buddhist doctrinal uh, text. Uh, for instance, for instance uh, in Pure Land Buddhism, uh, women cannot reborn uh, in the Pure Land in the form of female bodies um, but but in general we see this uh, you know this feminine uh, Guanyin manifestations actually provide different models uh, for women mirror different stages of their uh, life cycles uh, from teenager girls uh, to the old women's so it's, it's a very interesting uh, to look at of course my work my own work actually deals with the post feminized Guanyin period yeah Thank you. Um, I'm curious on that note, is there a movement at all in China by either men or women or scholars of any kind to go back to the pre-sixth century? Yeah, that's actually a very interesting uh, question. Of course, uh, when we talk about, you know, by the 14th century, this uh, Guanyin uh, already transformed into a, a feminine forms. It doesn't mean that uh, male forms disappeared mm -hmm. after 
uh, after 14th uh, century. So uh, it's interesting, uh, especially uh, because um, I'm art historian, if we look at visual materials, um, a lot of male artists try to insist <laughs> on the male <laughs> forms uh, of uh, Guanyin. So of course, um, by the, from 14th century to uh, 19th century, when we look at uh, uh, more kind of masculine uh, Guanyin forms, somehow that on the one hand, it's more, it's a represent um, archaic <laughs> forms. Uh, on the other hand, I think it's still uh, those male uh, scholars or painters still want to show that um, they can. Uh, but Guanyin also is <laughs> a male, <laughs> so it's a, it's, it's a very uh, interesting uh, issues. Yeah. Mm. Perfect. Thank you yeah. so much. Um, Grace, your project actively opposes colonialism by amplifying the voices of indigenous women. Do you see music as a vehicle of resistance? Thank you, Sahara. Um, oh, I feel like an asthma part of my voice. Um, I think uh, what I'm trying to do is um, trying to see how colonial values will emerge in contemporary Philippine life, um, at least in three areas. In um, gender, we say that um, before the coming of the Spaniards, before Catholicism, the, 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 the women could become priests. We call them Babaylan. And the Babaylans have not been wiped out by colonization. I am trying to assert this in my study. Um, we, have, we continue to have women priests, but they have lost their social status. They are very much marginalized, demonized, not only by the Christian establishment, but by the Islamic establishment as, as well. So, um, so that's religion when it comes to uh, and, and gender as well. Um, in, in terms of music, um, if you go to the conservatory, they would teach you um, Western classical music. Um, and when you listen to mass media, it is Western popular music. So there is no um, comprehensive effort to keep alive indigenous music. There might be tokens, there might be pieces that are being taught, but music is not just the text and the melody. In our experience, in indigenous experience, it is It is a whole, um, it is a relationship with ancestral beings that you summon when you sing. And in colonial history, singing, chant, was one of the first things that the colonizers outlawed. And most of the primary the primary oralists were the shamans, the Babaylan, who have been predominantly women. So by engaging in conversation with the Babaylan, you engage with issues of gender, religion, music, and other, so many other things. Um, yes, it is a creative 
form of resistance. If you talk to them, they may not even look at it in that way as resistance. But just by, you know, by, by, by singing your ancestral voice, despite forces against it, that, against that act, Of course, it is resistance in some way. Perfect. Um, I'm wondering, so we see the dethroning of like female power in post-colonial spaces over and over again, and this is another aspect of that. Um, how would you say has been your experience um, with these ancestral chants overcoming or bridging the gap with the male power that's existent? Can you can you elucidate some more? Um, for example, women um, have have you been able to speak to anyone? Are, are there any kind of like confidential information that you can offer us, for like on one on one, by those who have um, males in their family who might have changed through this concept? Concept of music, these chants, um, and this form of resistance like taking hold? Well, the chanters are not only women. They are male chanters as well. And uh, it's really finding spaces where these voices, these, these ancestral voices can be heard without demonization. Um, and I, you know, the, the, the t title of the panel is Ethical Scholarship. In my experience, my scholarship is always part of a bigger engagement um, of, as I say, providing space for these voices to be expressed and communicated by both male and female. And I have seen the transformation both in women and in, and in men when they are given the, the freedom, not that well, you can say that it was taken away from them because let me tell you a story. This July, um, we gathered a number of Babaylan and other elders in my, my parents' home. And uh, the women Babaylan was not really free to do her rituals because the male elders were not, you know, didn't want her to do these things because they now go to church and these, um, you know, these chants have been prohibited. Um, so the, 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 the female Babylon kept coming to me. I, I want to do this, I want to do this sacrifice, I do want to do this chant and all that. It was a long story, but at the end of uh, the one week gathering, the males, some of them who, are, who were also chanters, but who have not given voice to these chants for a very long time. But in this space, they were challenged to, you know, recall these voices that have been buried deep inside because there were others who were doing the same thing, male and female. So they had to kind of, you know, share what they knew, what, what they knew inside, but they were not allowing to come out. So at the end of the whole process, there was a change. They 
at least they told this one young woman who was who showed signs of being called to become a babaylan to go with their blessing to go and learn from them from the babaylan even the you know these male who in the beginning of the gathering were so against all this by coming to terms with their own ancestral voice that they have not given, you know, they have not allowed to be heard for a very long time, but by accepting that part of themselves, they allowed this young woman with their blessing, not that she could be stopped, because we are, we are very strong women in the Philippines. I don't doubt that. Um, yeah, with their blessing. That, that is a world of change. I don't know what they, what they did when they returned to their communities, but something happened there. And so the woman now is, the young woman now is on her way to becoming a Lovailan. It's a long process, but she has accepted this call. Thank you so much. Lynn, your project raises so many ethical issues about religious responses to the AIDS crisis. Do you see your project mainly as one about history, showing us how a gay or lesbian congregation responded to AIDS, theologically and practically, or do you see it as an opportunity for ethical reflection on contemporary issues? Thank you for that question. Um, it, it's a complicated one. Um, and um, as you say, the question of ethics and morality sort of pervades the question of how religious communities have, to, have responded to AIDS um, in the United States, around the, the globe, um, in a lot of different ways. So it's a complicated question. I think for the my research project, I'm seeing it as a historical project that's very interested in questions of um, moral logics and the construction of moral logics in different places. So while I would say it's probably more of a historical project, um, the question of the sociology of morality is something that has been of great interest to me and it's an interest that I bring to bear in this project. Um, this is a fascinating community, the Metropolitan Community Church of San Francisco, in part because um, they're deeply, deeply um, inspired by feminist ethics of the second wave, but of women, who, feminists, who worked here, among other places. Um, Letty Russell, who was one of the early um, WSRP people, um, actually brought the National Council of Churches to this church in order to understand AIDS. I mean, they were very much trying to make feminist ethics a living principle when facing this um, utter devastation and sort of from, from the basic day-to-day, -day, how do you care for people that are so sick and especially at the beginning when you're not sure what how you're making people vulnerable to the disease, if you are that kind of thing, to um, larger questions of how to ethically engage with denominations and religious organizations that are seeing a congregation like this as utterly marginal. Um, and then how to protest. I mean, this was a protest church. It, it held the first ACT UP meetings in San Francisco. Um, so how to sort of politically engage. So questions of ethics sort of permeate through the whole thing. In terms of the class, I, as I say, I'm interested in the sociology of morality. So I'm interested in um, the tensions between that different kinds of religious communities see when they face HIV. And um, for a lot of the communities that we'll be looking at, 
um, there's some kind of tension between either religious and cultural principle and the issues that AIDS raise, like I say, in terms of care and care provision, whether that's sort of on the congregational level or one thing we're going to be looking at that I'm very interested in is sort of competing logics between um, say the state as a care provider for HIV versus say public health culture that has its own sort of developed morality and the tension that those kinds of institutions face in relation to say religious-based and faith-based NGOs or congregations. I think that um, in the world of HIV you see these sort of competing moral ideas and moral logics trying to work themselves out in different contexts um, and that's something that we'll be looking at in the class. Um, so you spoke of religious and cultural tension. What would you say are like key takeaways or concepts that you guys have noticed or developed um, to overcome the religious and cultural tension that you've faced? Well, um, you know, I can answer that historically for this congregation. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about this congregation, I don't know how much you all know about the Metropolitan Community Church, but it was founded as a um, a gay church, um, and it was founded in 1968 by Troy Perry, who was a Pentecostal, who realized that a lot of gays and lesbians weren't finding a home, a congregational home, where they could be out people. Um, but, you know, 1968, way before the AIDS crisis, and the live question for many MCC churches in this denomination was, were they a gay church or were they a Christian church? Um, and, and the congregations in this denomination fall at different points in that spectrum. For um, MCC San Francisco, I think one of its big takeaways for itself is that they said that they were a gay church first um, and that that was going to inform how they engaged with Christianity and it enabled them to be sort of creative with the tradition in a way that if I, th I think that other congregations that were attempting a sort of more, um, more tentative or more um, conciliatory or more... Um, um, that they were trying to maintain a different kind of conversation with their home denominations and with the institution. It, it allowed them a sort of um, creative flexibility that allowed them in, in some ways to sort of re-engage the tradition in, in deeper ways that are interesting. So I think that's one interesting aspect about this congregation. Thank yeah. you. Um, we're going to go back to Septemi. Hello. <laughs> so going back, can interreligious dialogue heal the conditions that led to violence in Indonesia? political and religious, but let me give you an example how difficult and complex it is. I am a, an ordained minister, I'm a Christian, and I'll sing a song that will be very controversial. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. It is a site of controversy for people in Indonesia to listen to a minister to sing a Muslim call of prayer. And that's how complex it is to put interreligious dialogue as one of the solutions to violence that has been there for the long history, especially modern history of Indonesia. But I may say this, that for me to sing that song provides me with an opportunity to look beyond the reality, yet it's really pretty much embedded in the reality. And that's what the women whom I have encountered in my context have been trying to do. Why interreligious dialogue? Interreligious dialogue have been perceived as a safe 
elite and neutral space. But based on the women's experiences, it's not. It is a very risky space because then you have to be true to who you are. At the same time, you have to be willing to open yourself to the otherness of your religious neighbor. And if the otherness of your religious neighbor has been put from within the context of long history of communal violence, then the first risky thing that you have to be able to negotiate and to maneuver is how to protect yourself, but at the same time, to embrace the other. So my research is there. Why I put risky dialogue? Because for women, it's not only about the discourse of religion, but it is about who they are, being true to themselves, like myself as a Christian, but knowing that the sound of prayer for many of those who have been living through the communal violence, that very same call of prayer has become a traumatic voice. Because every time they listen to that voice, it reminds them of the call to kill their neighbor. And when I just do not know how to sing the church bell, like tung, tung, tung. <laughs> but for many Muslims also, the same thing happened. So how do you negotiate with this uh, interreligious songs that once have become a site of dialogue, but through the history of violence, it has become a site of violence as well? Thank you. Yeah. Um, Susanna. HDS students often wonder why they have to study languages. Would you be able to address these ethical questions? <laughs> Without all your years of language study, would you have been able to do what you did? Thanks for that question. Yeah, <laughs> you all should study languages while you're here. <laughs> what a great opportunity. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to bridge the larger question of how is that, how is it ethical, um, but I, it can, because I think it's, it's through the nitty gritty of language study that you open your world, right? That you open your eyes to new things, that you expand your horizons, and, and I think it's for us each to figure out um, how that relates to us, us as ethical subjects. But um, just uh, a quick example of how uh, important understanding languages to understanding specific contexts, in my case, specific contexts of veiling. Um, I can tell you from the get-go that I have a problem with the title for my course, which I gave <laughs> the title for my course. But the word veil itself it's a little bit of a problem. There is no, for example, Arabic word that means veil as it functions as an English word. There is a variety of Arabic words um, that connote different kinds of head covering. And so already we have this umbrella English term, right? Um, you, already you see the kind of colonial gesture in the use of the term veil. So just a way that language can help us to expose um, some of the problems that we face from the get-go and just the way we talk about these subjects. And for me, studying antiquity Greek is my language. So those of you interested in 
New Testament and early Christianity, I encourage you to study. Actually, I think you're pretty much required to study <laughs> Greek here if you are on one of those tracks. But um, so, so the same goes for, uh, for Greek, that we don't have one single Greek term that means veil. We have a variety of things, uh, a variety of Greek terms that somehow sim, um, connoted head coverings. And so to real, I, th I think to begin to understand on a deeper level the historical and social contexts of, um, of men's and women's veiling in late antiquity, we need to understand those words and, and, and try to approximate them closer than just lumping everything into the term veil. Thank you. Yuan, we're back. Um, how does the study of material culture address ethical concerns. Uh, really uh, great um, question. Um, uh, I think when we think of uh, uh, ethics in relation to gender, um, the first uh, you know, issues uh, came, comes in mind is the uh, gender equality, <laughs> right? And so then how this issue, uh, how something question like this, uh, has to do with the study of material culture. <laughs> um, but I think uh, Susanna actually raised uh, this issue uh, earlier. Um, so uh, I think in academia, um, we all probably uh, support uh, the maximum of uh, gender equality. But uh, then when come to the research, uh, I think mostly we're <laughs> dominated uh, by the textual uh, sources. Uh, and then, uh, of course, um, I, th I think it's the same as uh, probably European uh, tradition. In China, um, the textual sources uh, mainly uh, was written uh, by men. Um, so um, then uh, women's uh, voice uh, was naturally excluded uh, from uh, those uh, materials. I think uh, the, the ethical impulse um, uh, behind um, my mode of uh, research is try to bring <laughs> uh, women um, back to the uh, history. So um, just give you an example, because uh, actually you mentioned that, <laughs> that I work on hair embroidery uh, in your uh, introduction. So, uh, so hair embroidery, basically, uh, in China, um, it's they use women, especially women, use their own hairs uh, as threat to make an image uh, of the icon of this um, bodhisattva. Uh, so we know that uh, in um, Buddhist practice, there are parallel practice of, like for instance, blood writing scriptures, right? Mm -hmm. uh, use uh, one's blood uh, to transcribe uh, the Buddhist uh, scriptures. Uh, but that um, was mainly uh, practiced uh, by male patriarchs. Um, so hair embroidery, uh, almost invisible uh, in the uh, written uh, of uh, you know, Buddhist practice. Um, so it's, uh, but then we still see uh, some uh, records. Uh, for instance, uh, one, uh, some records saying that praising uh, some women has really fine skills of embroidery. They even split one hair into four strands. I know in English, <laughs> you all know the, the splitting hairs <laughs> means, right? <laughs> but in Chinese <laughs> practice, we actually <laughs> split one hair into four strands. Then the question is, you know, first, 
how did they do it? <laughs> and then second, <laughs> what is the symbolic meaning of this action itself, right? Um, so it's interesting, in contemporary China, in Ningbo, there are actually an institute of hair embroidery. Uh, but the funny thing is, uh, all the artists in that place are male, are men, um, mainly because the head of that institute, they, um, uh, he doesn't want to deal with um, women's maternal leave. Um, so then he refused to hire women in borders. Um, so then they also have a funny project. Uh, you should go there, it's really interesting. They have a gallery. And then uh, they start this project to make hair embroidery of the portraitures of uh, presidents in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> From Lincoln to Obama. Uh, you really see all of them are there. <laughs> of course, uh, the, the religious context of hair embroidery already lost uh, in contemporary China. So when I asked this uh, one uh, artist, male scholar, I said, uh, you know, I saw this record of splitting hairs. Um, you, know, how, you know, how do you think they could do that? And then he said, no, it's impossible. Uh, you, you can't do it. Um, this is uh, just the you know, record. But then we observed splitted hairs under microscope. Mm -hmm. So which means it was there. So then, of course, uh, this challenge, this very refinement of the skill itself is part of devotional practice. Mm -hmm. Of course, uh, also at the same time, you, people have to, women have to pluck out their hairs. So same as blood writing scripture, you have to suffer the pain. So, so I just use this, uh, you know, we have many, many different uh, cases. But then this case actually is a very good example uh, to show that the importance to study material culture as a way to bring women's practice back to the history. Yeah. Thank you, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, so we're gonna take the next few minutes and I'm gonna invite our panelists to question one another. So if you can start with Susanna and pose a question. Sure. Thank you. Um, There are ways, I'm thinking of the, when you were talking about the transformation of this deity mm -hmm. from male to female mm -hmm. um, in, in its Chinese context. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering if there are ways that contemporary studies, like theoretical studies mm -hmm. of gender transformation inform your project, or maybe the other way around, if, um, are, are there any kind of uh, recuperations mm -hmm. of this, the, the transformability <laughs> of this deity mm -hmm. um, in contemporary China to think about mm -hmm. uh, supporting challenges to the gender binary? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really a great uh, question. Uh, I think uh, you're right. Uh, it's definitely uh, the, um, the uh, contemporary uh, scholarship on the um, you know, gender studies uh, really kind of enforce uh, scholars to rethink this transformative <laughs> uh, quality uh, of this uh, kind of a two genders. Uh, so to break this binary uh, between male versus females. Um, so that's, uh, I think, one really drive uh, to make us uh, think. Um, even like one way say this deity transformed into a female deity. It doesn't mean that <laughs> this deity 
is completely a woman uh -huh. in the sense, for instance, this deity, um, you know, one woman, um, both men and women have difficulty to uh, persecute a child. Uh, they would mm. worship um, her, but doesn't mean that she actually can give birth. And also on the representational level, like for instance, some of her gender identity like breast was never represented. So it's interesting to see this kind of ambiguity uh, there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that actually yeah, forced us to think about, to not just draw this uh, clear distinction between you know, two genders. Yeah. Thank you. Perfect. So I'm gonna ask one of you to take one from this side. Well, just based on what you said this morning, um, have you come across um, cases wherein the veil uh, was, you know, more more complicated? You know, I'm, I'm thinking of how to compli complicate the polarity between veil as a symbol of oppression and veil as a symbol of freedom. Have you come across cases that complicated that? Definitely. Uh, there's there's one um, video of of uh, I think it was in the filmed in the 80s or 90s, maybe 1990s, of um, teenage Muslim women in Chicago who veiled, and the interviewer was asking them, kind of, why do you do this? Is it expression of piety? Is this what your family wants you to do? Is your are your parents making you veil? And many of them were veiling against their parents' best wishes. And several of those women said, I'm veiling to show solidarity with Palestinians. And so, and that surprised me. I, I can show my own <laughs> assumptions there, but that, that surprised me to see that these teenage women announcing political solidarity through their clothing choices. And, and so there I think we can, it, it starts to complicate this, this, um, this narrative of, of uh, these women are being made to do it or something like that when you start to see the, uh, the way veiling is used as political, as sign of political resistance um, in this case. And, and so that's, that's one of the ways. I think um, when I turn to the late ancient sources, it's good for me to keep in mind the variety of things that veiling can signify now, not that it's the same, it's not the same at all, but that there's variety. That for someone, um, that I need to think about fashion, you know, what was the empress wearing on her head and how did that affect what the, you know, so to, to think on that level and that, um, that that can still be related to asymmetries of power and to freedom and oppression, but that there's also many different things, including fashion, including textile production, including um, ideas about femininity, masculinity, piety, uh, all of just this variety, this richness of, of signification that's important for me to keep in mind when I look back in time. Thanks, Thank Grace. You.
Great, thank you all. Um, that wraps up our hour for this panel. I would invite you to give a really great round of applause to our panelists. Thank you.